So I want you to turn to Acts 2 because this week and the next two weeks, we're going to talk about spiritual vital signs. I was reading an article not too long ago, a week and a half ago, about how people and how often people avoid going to the doctor. They avoid going for checkups to find out how healthy they really are. And the craziest reason they avoid it, the number one reason, is they're afraid the doctor would tell them something is wrong with them. And I'm thinking, hello, you don't want to know that early? I mean, don't you want to know so you can work on it and minimize the effect? And that was kind of shocking to me. Say, I mean, do you really think the artery fairy is going to come and unclog your arteries at night? I don't think so. So it's terribly important for all of us to know our well-being, and the most basic way to assess that physically is to check your vital signs. And there are four of them, temperature, pulse, breathing, and blood pressure. So here's the deal. As important as it is to monitor your physical well-being, it is infinitely more important on how well your spiritual being is doing. And so many people don't even give it a thought. So by far, the most important question about us this morning is, how is your spiritual well-being? What is the state of your soul? See, what would God say about the trajectory of your life and mine and your character? Not what would somebody who likes you say. What would God say? So we're starting a series called Vital Signs, Checking Your Vital Signs. And today we're going to look at the vital signs not only of your body, but of your soul, your spiritual life. And it turns out that a classic passage in the Bible talks about four spiritual vital signs. And we're going to walk through them together this morning. And the reason this matters so much is that there are people all around us, people even in this room here, who have heart disease, who have cancer, maybe they have diabetes or some form of it, and they've got the symptoms, but they ignore them. They blow them off. And that means there are also people whose spiritual lives are also in some real bad shape. They're ignoring God. They're blowing off their character. They're headed down a road that could, in time, lead to some eternal regret. So the symptoms are there, but they don't want to know. Now, I'm a kind of person, I want to know. How am I doing? How's that blood pressure? How's that look? You checked your urine, you checked this, you took blood like a vampire, you took a lot of blood. Uh, the Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. Did you know that? You need to have that blood looked at. You say, well, I feel all right. You could be dead in three days. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. What's going on? What's going on inside that body? You don't know till you check. That's why doctors always want to check your vital signs. I mean, do you think people ever lie to their doctor? Come on. It turns out, <laughs> I, I was a little bit stunned, not totally surprised. It's common knowledge among doctors that patients routinely lie. They drink more than they say they do. They exercise less than they claim they do. They lie about their weight, even knowing in a moment I'm going to have to get on that scale. Newsweek magazine told about one woman whose doctor asked her, and how much do you smoke? And she said, I quit. And the doctor says, well, I reckon that pack of cigarettes sticking out of your purse must be for a friend. And she actually said, well, yeah, it is. Lie. 
See, it turns out that in the book of Acts, in the second chapter, the author talks about four defining characteristics that demonstrate spiritual vitality in followers of Jesus. Something like your heart rate, your blood pressure reflect physical life. This passage became a classic expression of the four spiritual vital signs in the early church. And this is how the writer puts it in Acts 2. It says, they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I, I want you to notice one distinction in that text I just read that helped all of us kind of anchor how we assess our spiritual health. See, we're told that the early followers of Jesus, here's the word, devoted themselves to these practices. Now, there's a big difference in dabbling and devotion. Would you agree? Yeah, I could put it like this. How many people ever took piano lessons? Show me your hand. I could pay off this church in the money I spent on my kids on piano lessons, and they can't play chopsticks. And some of you the same way. Well, I get my money back on ballet. Well, I mean, we could all, we could all make a dent around here if we could. But how many people in the room were so devoted to practicing the piano, so gripped by a vision of artistry and mastery that you never watched the clock, you never skipped a day, you never omitted a scale, you devoted yourself to piano lessons, and that's how you've achieved piano greatness today. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So how many people dabbled when it came to the piano? See, to dabble means... I do something when it's convenient, when I'm in the mood, when I need something, or when I have to. Well, these were people who were totally convinced that now through Jesus, and through, <coughs> excuse me, through his teaching, through his way of life, through his presence, being with them, they could live in the character and the power of God. And that was the offer of a lifetime. <coughs> that was what they wanted more than anything else. So they made this way of life, this way of Jesus, their ultimate priority, and it was countercultural. You bet it upset everybody. See, they wouldn't miss it. They sacrificed for it. They devoted themselves to it. They did it with great joy. They didn't have to. See, here, here's the first vital sign. You ready? Number one, the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Am I meeting God in the Bible on a regular basis? Let me pause and say this. I don't care how you get God's Word in you, whether it's a podcast, somebody on your iPad reads it to you, or you go to a small group, you study Scripture, or take a book of the Bible, maybe you do a chapter, half a chapter, and you get it, you get it in you. It's not how you get it in, it's getting it in you, right? It's a, it's, we're watching TV all the time, we're watching social media all the time, you're getting stuff in your head every day. Well, I don't want to force anything on my kids. Well, go with them to school. Go with them in the culture. Everybody's forcing on them something. And you are what you read and listen to and watch all the time. That input does shape you over time. So with our kids. So we're told that, the, thank you. We're told that the early followers of Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that teaching has come down to us through the Bible, particularly the New Testament. You know, how did Jesus react? How did he think? How did he upset people? What, what did he bring to separate race or bring it together or the rich and the poor? Major shakeup in that culture, and you can bet he would shake ours up too. 
So throughout the New Testament and all of the New Testament books, you can trace that back to what the apostles taught about what Jesus said. So we have it in Scripture. What the apostles taught about more than anything else was the person of Jesus. That's what they had to teach about. It wasn't about race. It wasn't about male or female. It wasn't political ideology. It was something about God in the flesh and his hope and his wishes for mankind and how we live and how we treat each other, which is out the window pretty much. I, I, I've often wondered if you actually believe the Bible, if you actually did, we wouldn't have to have a political party. We wouldn't have to have uh, uh, this race and that race. We got an Ethiopian church. We got, a, we got a, uh, an Italian church. We got a white church, a black church, a uh, Hispanic church, a political church. We got a Democrat, Republican church. We wouldn't have to have preaching and teaching over and over about mistreating people, discriminating against people, patronizing people, defrauding the poor for self-gain. If you disobeyed the Bible, truth, it would affect everybody, and there wouldn't be any of the stuff going on that we read about. I mean, we wouldn't have anything to preach about or do. You just treat it. How about the golden rule? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That'd be nice. Talk about a clear, easy-to-do scripture. And I'm just saying, I often wonder when I go to different churches and people and how the races are all messed up, why I have to be taught that if somebody comes in here from another nation, another country, I have to make them feel welcome. Of course I want them to feel welcome. I want them to be embraced. I want them to feel as good as you who have been in here 20 years. And you ought to do the same thing. Go out of your way to welcome them because that's what they did in the news. I don't care if you're from a Middle Eastern country, from an Arab nation. Jesus has got a good word for you. Got a good word for you. And I'm, I'm saying we just are so filled with bigotry and prejudice and, and particularly classes of people that we, we, we know the Bible, we say we believe it, and nobody does it. Well, that's like having an antibiotic and not taking it, see? So they were gripped by what Jesus taught. They were obsessed by the, I guess you would call it unmatched wisdom. Wow, they would say over, wow, wow, he's blowing me out of the water the way he lived. They were obsessed with the world. They were obsessed with this world-shattering reality of his death, crucifixion, and then resurrection from the dead, dying for our sins. They just couldn't get over it. They were devoted to this man's life and his teaching, but not because they thought God would give them a gold star or a ribbon for paying attention to it, not because it was an obligation, not because they would get maybe in trouble or feel guilty if they didn't do it, but because they met in the book a man who offered confidence for life now and hope beyond death like nothing else in the universe. Wow, suddenly they had a grasp on life. And I have to tell you, when somebody is alive to God, they love the wisdom of Scripture. They love the comfort of Scripture. They want the words of it embedded in their mind and heart so that when they're in trouble, they just automatically think, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm quoting Scripture, see? And when they wake up in the morning, they just automatically think, this is the day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. And then they're, when they're insulted, they automatically think, I will forgive. I will turn the other cheek. Or when somebody cuts me off on 281, I will automatically think, get behind me, Satan. There's always a thought that comes to you through that book, and that's how God can guide you and direct you without, uh, because you've got that embedded in your thought, that word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
You got to memorize a few things. Say it over and over and over till you get it. Okay? So something, something is going to be running through your mind automatically every day. We're constituted that way. And if it's not thoughts from Scripture, what would you rather it be? See? We, we get so lax, so casual about what matters so much. Are we filling our mind with, with nonsense, with something contrary to Scripture? Did you know Scripture outranks the culture? I don't know what they're going to vote on next time. I don't know what new trend they'll now legalize that was before not legalized. I don't care what they do. I'm guided by what Scripture says. If it's clear, if it's clear Scripture, that settles it for me. You don't have to argue. You don't have to, you don't have to threaten me. You don't have to coerce me. I'm just going to do it. This is that simple. So are we, what are we filling our mind with? Now, this spiritual vital sign is not, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Because 90% of the people who say they believe it don't actually read it or know it. The Barna Research Group, who study churches and Christians, said the vast majority of Americans believe the Bible is the Word of God. But 60% cannot name one of the Ten Commandments. One out of three who follow Jesus can't name the apostles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. 75% of believers believe that the Bible says God helps them who help themselves. Well, it's not in the Bible, and it wasn't God that said it. It was Benjamin Franklin. 12% of believers in America believe Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. And I'm not making this up. These are surveys. 12% believe that. Come here, Sparky, let me slap you. You don't even know what God, no wonder we're a messed up uh, nation. See, when somebody's being animated by the Spirit of God, when they have a vision for life together with our friend Jesus, they find themselves wanting to meet him in this book. They're just curious about the things he said. They're curious about the things he did. And they will memorize passages in the Bible, not to show off to other people. It's kind of like how you want to have great furniture in your home. Well, why in the world would you not want to have great furniture for your mind? Your house is temporary. Your mind, that's eternal. And as a man thinks, so is he. You got to get this right up here. And again, we're all assessing ourselves only, right? When people are dabbling on this, they neglect Scripture. They even avoid the Bible, afraid they might feel guilty if they read it, and they don't want that. Or maybe they just use an excuse it seems boring, and they just have something better to do. They just get careless about what they're feeding their mind on, and boy, does it show. You know, how does joining a political party change me as a Bible-believing Christian on what, on what I'm going to sanction or put up to vote or give my credence to? I don't have to go visit a pope to find out murdering you is not a good thing. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying, are you serious? If I am, if I am taught the Bible is the Word of God, I... I am not letting any political party dictate my future. I can think for myself. I don't have, I, I, we serve the poor in the community. We give money, we give clothes, we give food, and we're about to serve 2,000 kids in child protection. I don't need anybody to tell me, reach out to your community. That's in the Bible, but that's also in what we do. That's our DNA. See, I know what Scripture says to do. So I read a statement by the president of a Christian college 
And he said he was so encouraged by his generation of students. He said their commitment to compassion, the way they love justice, the way they want to be active on the planet, the way they want to make a difference, the way they hate phoniness and all of these tremendously admirable things. He said this, but I have this huge concern. They don't know the Bible. And that's true today. We're raising a generation of young people who want to love Jesus, who name the name of Jesus, who wear a cross, but they don't have a clue what's in that Bible. They don't know the book in which we meet him. Their minds are being shaped and formed by other sources. So everybody, where are you in grading yourself on this vital sign? Are you devoted? Do you actually have a plan for getting scripture in you? Are you carrying that plan out? Do you meditate regularly on it? Do you memorize chunks of it? When is the last time you decided to do something because in Scripture you read it and God commanded you ought to do that? That's something I sanctioned. Would you do it? And you do something you haven't done for the first time because Scripture said you ought to do it. See, I, I remember forgiving my father for the, the way he raised me and his treatment. I hated him. But I remember having a seminar teacher come when I worked at James Robinson so many years ago. And I remember he taught something about curses in Scripture. And I got sitting there and I got to thinking, oh, man, I am going to have to forgive that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I would have rather French kissed a, a rhinoceros <laughs> is to have to go to that phone and make that call. That was the most terrifying thing in my life because I had that much hate. But I did it. And I did it graciously and nicely with all the guts the Holy Spirit would give me. And it was good. It was liberating because it was right. I didn't want to hold it because Scripture convicted me. And I did what I didn't want to do because it was right to do it. And it honored God. And it ended up having a good result. What's God telling you to do you won't do, aren't going to do? Are you still resisting? See? It's, is it time for something new in your life? Maybe there's a fresh way to read the Bible. Get it in you. Well, that's the first vital sign. Am I meeting God regularly in Scripture? Second vital sign is fellowship. Is God transforming my relationships? I was talking recently to a man I know very well, and he was telling me, Rick, there's this person in my life, I know him very well, and there's some stuff about him that's really bothering me. It's been festering. It stews in my mind, and I'm going to have to have a direct, painful conversation with him. You know what my first thought was? Honestly, my first thought was, whoever that guy is, I hope it ain't me. I hope I don't have to have that painful conversation. See, I can go into avoidance mode, superficial relationship mode, user mode, just so easy. So understand, guys, when the Holy Spirit came, he ushered into the human race and pushed us into a whole different way of doing relationships, of doing community, God's plan for humanity. One of Jesus' most famous teachings about relationships is brief, and it's brilliant, and it, became no, and it wasn't sanctioned by any political party. How about the golden rule? So in everything, do to others like you'd have them do to you. For this sums up all the law and all the prophets. If we only did that, we wouldn't have racism. We wouldn't have murder and violence. We wouldn't have half the problems we've got going on now if we only did that one. How? Do you have to have a PhD to figure that out? 
Well, I don't know much about, well, you know what you don't want people to do to you. I don't want somebody to steal from me, and I've had it. I don't want somebody to kill me. I don't want somebody to betray me. I don't want somebody, well, well then don't do that yourself. Don't do that to anybody else. You don't want somebody to cheat you. Don't cheat somebody else, all right? So in the Acts 2 church, when the Holy Spirit came, it, it's kind of like people invented what could be called the golden rule community. And the church now was rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, male and female, every race, every language, every culture, and they took it real seriously because up to that point, it had been strictly race and gender, uh, uh, male-dominated, and women were backseat, just chattel property with very little or no rights at all. And Jesus came in and shook that baby to the ground and upset everybody. And old Peter, he was a, he would be in our culture, what we would call, I'm an old Southern boy, be an old pickup truck with his gun rack in the back, a few beer cans in the floor, a a redneck racist. You, You can, you can imagine. I grew up in that kind of a culture. And I'm thinking, oh, Peter wouldn't have anything to do with a Gentile. They were called dogs. And then Jesus showed up and ruined everything. <laughs> Told him, don't you call unclean what I've cleansed. And I don't care what nationality they are, what culture they come from. If I've cleansed them and they call me father, they're your brother. And you treat them exactly that way. That was not done before Jesus came. <laughs> See, when a person is in this church, I don't want a church. I don't want, oh, that's, a, that's an ultra-conservative white church. My God, are you kidding me? That's like insulting your wife or your mother. You, know, you want a Jesus church. What kind of church you go to? Whatever he says, do it. That ought to do it. Whatever he says, do it. It's got nothing to do with race or color or nationality or anything else. We're all equal before the cross. We're not equal in gifts or talent or, or skills, but we're equal in value to God Almighty. So he makes it clear. You don't treat a poor man different than you treat a rich man. You be gracious. You be honest. You act with integrity to everybody. I want everybody to feel welcome. And they, I don't care if they're multiracial marriage. I don't care if they come from a, an Arabian background in the Middle East. They're precious. God died for them, and they can be part of his family just as much as anybody else can. And they all come in the same way through Jesus. That's the door. Yeah, I can't get in through my works. That's pitiful. I wouldn't even, I'd flunk that physical. And so, so would you. I got in by grace alone, mercy and grace, and I'm so glad. See, when a person is spiritually healthy, that's going to be a top priority, to have some relationships with brothers and sisters where they can get real, where they can be authentic. Now, that ain't everybody. Everybody doesn't get a backstage all-purpose pass to your life. But there better be some people where you can talk about your temptations, where you're kind of falling down, where you can confess, well, here's how I blew this week. Here's where I've sinned. Here's where with money or my sexuality or with my anger, I'm not on track. I got to get some help. It's kind of like the doctor says, well, your blood pressure's too high. We need to do that. Your cholesterol's too high. We need to do this. You need to drop 50 pounds off here. You're going to roll into type 2 diabetes. Well, if I'm a smart guy, I'm going to listen to what my body has told him so I can be healthy and live a good life, live a long life, and live all the days of my life that God's granted to me. I don't want to live infirm, so I'm going to make some adjustments. What you can eat, what you can't eat, Make those changes for a good, healthy, productive life. Well, you got to do the same thing spiritually. You got to get a checkup every now and then. 
See, this is where people will say to someone, here are my values about finances, about money. Here's my, here are my values about prayer, about family, about marriage, about intimacy, about children. Hold me accountable. Will you ask me, how's it going, Rick? How are you doing in that area that was giving you so much trouble? Encouraging one another. Forsake not assembling yourselves together so we can encourage and build each other up. You don't come Christmas and Easter, for God's sake. I, that's like going to the doctor once every 10 years. And the doctor says, well, look like you're going to die. It's too late to do anything. When it would have been easy to treat early, see? When people are just dabbling, they might come to church when it's convenient, but they avoid getting too close to real people, and they don't really want to be part of a connect group because they might actually have to open up and talk about their life, and they don't want to be held accountable. So when people are dabbling, they get casual about gathering together with other believers. I was talking to a friend of mine last week. He invited a guy to church here from work. And he said, the guy's response was pretty typical. Well, in a funny way, I'm a CEO Christian, Christmas and Easter only. And then my friend talked to another guy who's Jewish. And this guy said to him, I'd never heard this one. I'm an H2O synagogue guy. High holy days only. I had never heard that. Apparently, dabbling is a multi-faith phenomenon. See, when people are spiritually healthy on relationships, one of those vital signs is they keep short accounts. The Apostle Paul says, in your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and don't give the devil a foothold. See, notice Paul doesn't say Christians shouldn't get angry. In fact, one of the worst ways to handle anger is to pretend like you never get angry. All the Bible says is be angry, but don't sin. Some of you would never say, I'm angry. You'd say, well, I'm upset. Well, yeah, you've, you've hurt me deeply. Or if things were really bad, you'd say, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Well, if you ever hear that, we ain't got serious trouble, we, right? Then I got married to somebody who would say, I'm mad at you. And I say, you can't say you're mad, which made her even more mad. One of the classic examples of keeping short accounts is, is an article from a Christian couple, Charlie and Martha Shedd. Great couple. I, I've read some of their literature. And they were involved in a lot of ministry stuff. They're just real life refreshing people. And Charlie said one time he and his wife Martha had a big argument. And Martha left him a note on the kitchen table that read, Dear Charlie, I hate you. Love, Martha. <laughs> Anybody feel like that sometimes? See? See, when the Holy Spirit is really at work in somebody's life, they become devoted to keeping short accounts, to doing relationships differently, lingering resentment, sarcastic shots across somebody's bow, silent treatment, withdrawal, deep contempt and judgment, mentalism. They're no longer things they're willing to put up with. They're going to keep short accounts. Now, they're not relationally perfect. None of us are. Not at all but they're devoted to making things right as quickly as possible. And they regularly ask the Holy Spirit, please guide me in my relations life, right? They say phrases like, I'm sorry. They say phrases like, I was careless, please forgive me. And people say, I forgive you. That's a good thing. Let somebody be released, you know? So honestly, right now, time out, when it comes to a vital sign of your relationships, are you devoted to fellowship, devoted to community, developed to accountability, devoted to forgiveness, or honestly, are you just kind of dabbling? See, when you need help, 
You don't want to dabble. You want people there. But if you haven't built any relationships, they won't be there. So you work on them when you don't need them. And then when you need them, they'll be there. You get connected to people. You have no idea. We've had people connected. We've connected them to medical advice and help. Uh, a single mom who struggled to make ends meet needed an MRI on her child. I remember her sitting over on this side of our church, and I remember connecting her with a couple of doctors, and one of our docs hooked them up with somebody that does the MRIs, and they were able to do it for $300, which somebody else picked up for. See, the connections the connect can open a door for you to connect to somebody that can give you what you need. You could be sitting next to the greatest opportunity of your life. You just don't know. God works through people. He sets the solitary Texans in family. There's a benefit to being there. Encouragement, strength, uh, uh, help. There should be nobody in here with a will work for food sign at the doorstop. If you get connected in here, planted in the house of God, God says, even in old age, you will bear fruit. Old age, just a number. You get planted in the house of God, and God says you're going to be as productive. And by the way, medical science, and I read it to our men yesterday in the event, between 60 and 80 are your most productive years. So for God's sake, stay healthy. Get healthy so you can enjoy those years of mass productivity instead of, of having to survive on medicine, and you're inactive, and you can't participate. Take care of yourself. Number three prayer. There's another vital sign. Am I continually communicating, talking with God? Here's what the Apostle Paul says marks the prayer life of a spiritually vital person. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, even on a human level, the healthier a relationship is, the more intimate a relationship is, the more attuned you are if there's a little break, a little distance in that relationship. You know, you guys can come home and, and look, check out the why, what's going on. You, something, you, something ain't right. What, what, what's the matter? Nothing. <laughs> that's, that's a tip-off. Hmm. Don't have to give you a pill for that. Your cholesterol's too high. Huh? That's not good. Cindy and I have a running disagreement we used to, used to have about a television show that was called The Bachelor, whether or not it was a dark and nefarious thing, which it is. This week, <laughs> so several years ago, we made a phone call, and Cindy said, Rick, I need you to like The Bachelor. I just saw the finale, and there's an expression of love and tenderness that's so moving. I was in tears, and I need you to like it. So I said to Cindy, okay, babe. If you really want me to like it, we could arrange to have 25 attractive girls recruited. I'll date them all, but I'll choose you in the end. <laughs> Our conversation was immediately hang up. I called her back and I got this message. If this is my jackass of a husband, I'm not available right now. I could tell oh, there was a little disconnect in that relationship. In the Acts 2 church, those people were devoted to prayer, which means they were devoted to having this continual, interactive, in, in, inter, what do you call it? You're relating emotionally and physically and communicating. You're doing that with God, just like you would do that in a marriage relationship. That's how we receive grace. 
You know, I don't care how you talk to God. God can understand any language or any style. And I, most of you, if you've been in a church or you've had a Catholic background, you're always going to hear stuff like, like some Vatican, uh, Vatican uh, or you go into a Protestant church and it's going to be 400-year-old language, King James, ye thou the. You, nobody talks that way. Unless you're 400 years old, then you do. But not unless. So you just talk to God. You walk around. You know, I quote scripture all the time. I took the dug out this morning. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. As for God, his word is perfect. The word of the Lord is tested and tried. Thank you, Lord. You sent your word to heal me, to deliver me from all my destructions. No weapon shall come, no plague shall come near my dwelling. No weapon formed against me, my family or kids shall prosper. I remind you, devil, I am begotten of God. I'm walking the dark. Come on, Lily, let's go. I'm just all the time talking to the Lord. So you don't have to have a set time where you have to, you know, build your space, go in a closet, or, or set all, get at 5 o'clock. Some guys have written a book on it. One size doesn't fit everybody. Just talk to God regularly in bursts, short bursts, throughout the day, driving the car, going to pick up the kids, it just going down the hall with the mop, yeah, praying about something. And just talk to God, just like you would your best friend over coffee. You just talk about it. It's not this religious setting all the time I hear about. If you get one, okay, God bless you. But the idea is pray without ceasing. Well, that's how you do it all day. I don't just have one time I talk to God. I got more needs than that. <laughs> I hadn't got enough time. So I just talk to him all the time. Walk out, say, thank you, Lord. That was a great blessing. I didn't expect that. Bless that person who just blessed me. Bless their business or whatever. Just talking, just, just constant communication. See, that's how you receive grace. That's how we live by grace. It's like being rooted in God. People prayed when they were together. They prayed when they were on their own. They prayed to start the day. They prayed to end the day. They, do you pray to end the day? You, get, you go in there with your kids and end of the day, Lord, thank you for this day. Uh, I thank you that you surround us with your angels. You deliver us from evil. I thank you, Lord, for a good rest tonight and for sweet dreams. I pray peace. I say no plague shall come near my dwelling, nor my wife or children or my grandchildren. They are covered in the blood of Jesus. I do that every single night over our home, over our family, our kids. You start the day and you close the day. And I don't, it ain't no big effort. You can do it in the shower. You can just do it getting ready for bed. It's easy. You just do it. Constant communication. See? You, you, you pray when you're in trouble and you need help. They prayed when they were blessed and wanted to express their gratitude. They just prayed all the time. So why did they devote themselves to prayer? Well, it wasn't because it was an obligation. It wasn't because they thought they were getting a gold star or some ribbon uh, to show they were spiritual people. They were convinced they were not in control of the universe. Can I tell you something? If COVID taught us anything in the last two years... And if the 08 economic collapse taught us anything, we're not in control of much. How quick we find out how little we actually can control. See, we don't control the universe. But they were convinced that self-sufficiency and self-reliance would not be a good life strategy. I want my life in the hands of a God who can do anything and has a good plan for me. I'm in safekeeping if I do it. They were convinced God exists, God listens, God cares, God responds, and God is able. I am too. So people who are alive spiritually have a conviction that the greatest intimacy with God is uniquely through prayer. Ask people who have experienced a tragedy, people who have been betrayed by a spouse, people who got diagnosed with cancer, 
people who had a dream crumble, who lost a job, and they will tell you something happens in prayer that won't happen anywhere else. People will say things like that, Rick, I received such a peace. I couldn't understand. I can't explain it, but I knew. I just knew in that moment I'm not alone. God was with me. See, that's the benefit of having some scripture in you as well, to comfort yourself that God's with you. Well, I just had bad news. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray against that with God's word. Why? Gives me confidence. Gives me peace. See? Prayer people receive wisdom or strength or encouragement or guidance or conviction or forgiveness, and they know they're loved with a love no human power can provide for you. In many ways, it seems just like an ordinary conversation if you're looking at it, but a lot of times folks are saying something and it might go like this. I, I ran across this this past week and it was pretty simple. You could try it. Good morning, Lord. It's me. Well, now I know the Lord knows it's me, okay, but I'm just saying it's good to say. This is my situation today. This is how I'm feeling. This is how I need your help. What should I do? Then I'm just silent and I listen for thoughts that might come from God. Maybe a scripture will come to my mind or an idea of something I should do. I'm concerned about these people, and I name them. I'm concerned about them because of whatever reason. What should I do? Again, be quiet. Do a little bit of listening. Lord, guide me in this, whatever it may be. You know, we've got a funeral coming up this week. We've got something else coming up. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me fresh anointing. Give me clarity of thought, how I should approach it, what I should do. See, every day I'll have meetings or problems or situation, and I'll ask for guidance and then just be silent. Thanks, Lord, for listening. I'm counting on you. I think it's a simple, wonderful way to do prayer, but if that doesn't work for you, for crying out loud, find something that does, but talk. Don't worry about broken English. Don't worry about uh, your native language. Don't worry if you have uh, terrible grammar in English. God understands. He can hear it, okay? I have to tell you this. For the person who is not in great spiritual health, they dabble at prayer. They don't routinely surrender their day to God at the start, and they don't expect gratitude for God's goodness. And they miss all the chances to connect the dots. Their first instinct is, i got to handle this problem on my own. And they often don't pray unless there's a crisis or unless they can't solve or meet a need. And, and then if they don't get what they want right away, well, then they don't persist. They just drop off and forget it. Jesus said to persist in prayer, like somebody knocking on the door of a neighbor. Well, we'll do that humanly, but you remember he gave the story about the widow. And that little widow was persistent. She got an unjust judge. He wouldn't give her what she wanted. She just kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. And Jesus is telling us, I do have a great heart, but I want you to persist in prayer. See, we talked about that before. Dabblers don't persist. They just give it one shot and forget it. So where are you on that scale? And last, and we're done, the last vital signs, breaking of bread. Am I sharing my life with others? In that Acts 2 church, it was radically different from doing life from other people around them. Breaking of bread kind of referred to the sharing of meals, the sharing of hospitality. In the ancient world, people generally would take care of themselves and their families. But in the Acts 2 church, something radical happened. The Holy Spirit got a hold of people, and they began to prompt, he began to prompt them to treat strangers like family, to treat people who were different from them, people of other tribes, people who were of no strategic use to them like family. That's pretty shocking. 
People who had homes would sometimes open them up and share their food with people who didn't have any. People who had lots of property would sometimes sell off some of it and give the money to the apostles to share and distribute as was needed. People who are spiritually alive will devote themselves to that kind of stuff. They'll want to know, what are the spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit's given to me? How can I use them primarily, not for my own selfish uh, career or fulfillment, but to serve God and to help benefit his body, the church, the bride of Jesus? So the chance to teach children, the chance to be a volunteer, to come alongside of some young people in high school, the chance to help a stranger feel welcome, they took that as a joy. And they actually would say, as I've heard people say here, hey, it's a privilege for me to serve. And it should be. You'll find them with no spotlight, visiting somebody who's alone, adopting a classroom of young students at an under-resourced school, just as we do uh, every year uh, as kids go back to school, or going on a missions trip to learn about what God might be doing in another part of the world, instead of dabbling at giving when they feel like it. But they've got a systematic plan for tithing and generosity. And they're going to experience the joy of faith that comes when you know God's involved even in your financial life. We need you to help us for the Christmas blast. 2,000 kids in child protective services. That's about 40 grand. And we need people who, from the little to a lot to step up and say, I'm going to take a piece of that. And then get gifts. We'll be doing that next week. We'll have cards that tell you how old the child is, a girl or guy, and what they want for Christmas. And we make it a happy, joyful time for these. That ought to be normal. I mean, that should be the norm. I don't have to live in a ghetto to take care of people poor. We can do it from right here. And we've done it since, I don't know, 15 years maybe. It's a, to me, it's a privilege to share. God says, whatever you make happen for others, God will make happen for you, Ephesians 6, 8. So step up, get that offering envelope out and take, take some extra money above your normal giving for the support of the church so we can help the poor and help the under-resourced children and make a little difference and a little Merry Christmas for them. Eh, shouldn't have to beg you. We'll have services for Christmas Eve. We'll have a lot of fun. We need a little bit of help. You don't, I, I shouldn't have to get an electric prodder for cattle to say, please go sign up. Please go help us distribute the gifts. Please, you ought to say, I'm in. We don't do that like every week. So I'll step up and I'll serve at this service. I'll take that late service. I'll take the early one. I'll be, where can, where can you use me? That's it. Somebody has a lot of resources. Hey, I'll buy that. I'll pitch in. I'll get that. Somebody else says, I'll serve there. Time, talent, treasure. That was part of the Acts 2 community. Nobody had to arm wrestle anybody or convict them or, dis, or you know, manipulate them into doing something. My God, no. I don't care, you know, giving. I, I've been doing that since I was 18 years old. I don't need you to give me a heartwarming, tear-jerking sermon to get me to give my offering. If, if the offering had to be put on the roof, I'm a tither and I'm a giver. I'll put it on the roof. It's coming. I don't even need you to say anything. That's part of my DNA. That's part of my spiritual health. It's coming. It's going to be that way. How, how about you? How's your health in that? People who are spiritually alive will walk through their days looking for spirit-prompted opportunities to serve, to serve with energy and joy. People in the X2 church were kind of entering into this big life reality. Same old world, same job, same street, same offices. Only God was now big everywhere. God's love, God's care, God's power had become the foundation for their lives. And their motto was, bless them all. A disciple living in augmented reality. Guys, if we're all doing, if all we do is sit in this church and, and God's not using us so that under-resourced people 
forgotten people, marginalized people, and little kids aren't getting a good education, not getting enough to eat, and young people have to join a gang because nobody cared about them, nobody loves them, everybody's written them off, folks who are despised because of their clothes or their color of their skin or their accent or their nationality. If we're not going out there so that life is different there, then nobody cares what we dabble about in here. People who are spiritually healthy do that. People who are not spiritually healthy don't, right? So let's, let's all pull together for spiritual vitality and health. And I can't wait to next week because we're going to look at financial vitality and it's all about many areas of your economic life, not just giving. See, right now, take a look where you stand on your own spiritual vital chart and then ask between you and God, where would you like to be? Uh, we don't have the power to make that change on our own. This is not a self-improvement deal. We don't have to. Jesus promises to help us. He's the one who started the church in Acts 2 with his life, death, and resurrection. And he'll help you and me. Devotion does not mean perfection. It just means sincere surrender one moment at a time. And when I look at that verse, I wonder if the writer would be describing us what he would say. Would some it be a church of dabblers or a church of devoted? I hope it's the latter. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.